time for the September 8th, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review. A personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history. Broadcasting on International Literacy Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. I'm Claudia Shamba. And, as always, a man of wealth and taste, Mahler, <laughs> the face news dog. Well, he's kind of excited, I think, today, because Mike's not here. He's sniffing around for Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. He's, he's not sniff, here, sniff. so he's agitated. He's a little bit off his game, <laughs> Mahler is. No, he's over. He's outside somewhere. Yeah, he's doing okay. He's out on family business, Mahler, don't worry. In his stead, Weekly Signals welcomes Claudia Shamba. Thank you, thank you. Yes. Oh, (laughs) thank you, buddy. Claudia is the host of KUCI's Ask a Leader, the best local news and commentary radio show in Orange County, broadcasting every Tuesday morning at 9. Thank you. Thanks again for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Do you like dogs, Claudia, or is this just an act here with Mahler? Well, I've never met Mahler, except for, you know, when I come in here. But yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something about dogs. I know now about the oxytocin effect and dogs. A very specific dog has me really wrapped around his finger. I'm bonded with my daughter's dog. Okay. I can't believe it. I hate how much I like her dog. So you can't separate from the dog oh i can separate but i'm so i i kind of expect to see it when i see her i understand do you plan on seeing a therapist about this no i'm just (laughs) i just know my oxytocin load so now i know okay that's the culprit it's not that i've lost my cookies from ars technica a little more than half of surveyed dog owners Mm -hmm. that's 53 percent question the safety efficacy and or necessity of vaccinating their four-legged family members. Responses from canine vaccine hesitancy dog owners found that 56% opposed mandatory vaccination against rabies, a 100% fatal condition. There you have it. It's sad. In an especially striking finding, the study found that 37% of all dog owners believed vaccines could cause their pets to develop cognitive problems such as canine feline autism just to be clear vaccines do not cause autism this falsehood has been thoroughly and repeatedly debunked for years for decades a plethora of data on vaccine safety shows absolutely no link between vaccination and autism further canine autism also known online as canine dysfunctional behavior which what canine i mean truly what canine yeah what canine is not dysfunctional? Well, I want to let me just pick a bone with this story that that this vaccine hesitancy is probably the, the there's a direct line from that kind of choice to a aforementioned dog, his best buddy, dropped dead at four years of age yeah. with a respiratory infection, probably attributable to other unvaccinated dogs hanging out at the kennel the guy was at for yeah. a stretch of days. So. So That's a friend it, of yours, dog. My daughter's dog's friend dog was a four-year-old retriever. It dropped. It died very suddenly at only four. And the owner implicates the dogs that were not vaccinated at his uh, sleepover at the kennel. Dang. 
canine autism is not a real condition. It's fake. Yeah. It's a hoax. Overall, the findings add to concern that the anti-vaccine sentiments that flared during the pandemic have fanned out broadly, undermining even routine childhood vaccinations. It's the same crowd, same yeah. cult, culture. You know, you try to help people. You try to develop smart folk that can specialize in things and bring science along and understand what causes disease and, and help humanity. And I guess it's fear, which is... Sorry. Or membership, club Mem- cult membership. You think? <laughs> From the Guardian, it's likely that the Asian hornet has become established in the UK conservationist fear as a record number of nests have been found. The vast majority of the sightings have been in Kent, a county in southeastern England, and some experts are concerned Asian hornets may have established themselves there. The government's strategy is to locate and kill every hornet and destroy all nests to prevent them from staying over winter and multiplying. Once they're established, it's almost impossible to get rid of the Asian hornet, which would be terrible news for native bees, which the hornets dismember and eat. They just camp outside honeybee hives and capture bees as they enter and exit, and then they chop them up into little... uh, Cutlets. Cutlets, yeah. And feed the thoraxes, the digestive system of the bees, to their young. I guess they eat the the drumsticks and give the meaty stuff to their their babies. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) If you love dogs or hate cats, may I recommend a donation to KUCI to help you make up your mind? (laughs) Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. (laughs) Here's a pair of important stories from the Washington Post I got here. The first, according to a major report backed by the UN, invasive pests are wrecking havoc across the planet, destroying crops, disseminating pathogens, depleting fish people rely on for food, and driving native plants and animals toward extinction. The landmark assessment found that more than 3,500 harmful invasive species cost society more than $423 billion a year. With a B. Yeah. Uh, Tally only expected to grow as the modern age of global trade and travel continues to supercharge the spread of plants and animals across the continents. One of the things that we stress is the tremendous threat this poses to, and I know this is going to sound grandiose, but to human civilization, said Peter Stowett, an Ontario Tech University professor who helped lead a group of about seven dozen experts in writing the report. The bill for invasive pests of $423 billion a year, he added, is extremely conservative. The spread of plants and animals between continents is one of the main causes of Earth's ongoing biodiversity crisis, an extinction event on par with the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. Gee. Invasive species are playing a role in 60% of extinctions, according to the report. As more harmful invasive species take hold and multiply, humanity faces profound risks. 
as pests threatens to eat through croplands and spread mosquito-borne illnesses and other diseases. Sounds like we're doomsayers here, aren't we? Doesn't well, it? well. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it, I'm not hearing anything countering <laughs> that. Yeah, I, mean, I, keep, I keep going to what I've known for years as very reliable news sources who've been able to, not even say see into the future, but be able to gauge the present to make very logical assumptions about what's going to happen. And what they're reporting now does not make me feel no. optimistic about it's things. Confirming. I should be optimistic and hope for the best, expect the worst. And I am expecting us all to pull together here and do something before it gets You're hoping. too dire. That's the hoping part. Yes, yes. The expecting was the other part. Don't tell them that. Mm. The second story from the Washington Post, Pakistan is the epicenter of a new global wave of disease and death linked to the climate crisis, according to an analysis of climate data, leading scientific studies, interviews with experts, and reporting from some of the places bearing the brunt of extreme heat. The research used new models and massive data sets to produce the most up-to-date predictions of how often people in nearly 15,000 500 cities would face such intense heat that they could quickly become ill in the near term and over the coming decades. Cities such as Jacobabad and Hyderabad are projected to have several months each year where conditions are so extreme that even people in the shade face health risks. Other regions projected to face increasingly severe heat waves include the Middle East, India, and parts of Vietnam and China. When taking into account the force of the sun, the health risks are even higher. Over 40 million people in Pakistan would endure dangerous heat for more than half a year unless they can find shade. In the United States, more dangerous heat will envelop parts of the south and southwest. The study showed that by 2030, 500 million people around the world, particularly in places like South Asia and the Middle East, would be exposed to extreme heat for at least a month, even if they can get out of the sun. The largest population, 270 million, was in India, followed by 190 million in Pakistan, 34 million in the Arabian Peninsula, and more than 1 million apiece in Mexico and the Sudan. The results show how the risk has been growing and will escalate in the future by 2050. That's 2050. Not a long time from now. Not a long now, time from know. now. By 2050, the number of people suffering from a month of inescapable heat could further grow to a staggering 1.3 billion. And I just want to also bring up that things won't cool off every day. It's that's I mean, you said in the shade and yeah. overnight. Yeah. There's just zero relief. And yeah. that's where fatalities are rack up. Yeah, we're very fortunate here in Southern California to have, especially this, these days. This right, microclimate here, so close to the Pacific. Yeah, you know, right where we are <laughs> here in Irvine, especially, we're amazingly lucky because we have nights that are cooler for the most part. Which is a reprieve we're counting on, but others, it, yeah. elsewhere, it didn't ever get below 90 yeah, for, for weeks. That heat That's wave, extreme. Yeah, that long heat wave in Phoenix. Was, That's uh, what I'm thinking, yeah. Latest one, yeah. 112 in the day and 90 in the evening. Doesn't that, sound that cool. Makes people sick. Yep. From the New York Times, only about a third of the 3.7 miles of coastline in Oceanside, California, still has enough sand for people to enjoy. Boy, I'm a 
just bringing up all sorts of bad news for people to start their weekend with. Don't go to the beach. It's disappearing. And if you stay out in the sun there, you'll get sick. Well, and also tied into that, it's the corridor, the railroad corridor. It's located right there where that erosion is occurring. It is the second most traveled railroad corridor in the country. So, and I know Board of Supervisor Foley is on it and working with folks and, and trying to get people to now consider that investment that's necessary to move that railroad corridor further upland. So yeah. it's all, all of those factors are happening right there in the Oceanside area. Yeah. Local leaders there are now rushing to reimagine the shoreline mm, in, hopes, in hopes that Oceanside can transform itself into a new kind of California beach town before it's too late. In May 2022, the city hired Jamie Timberlake as its first coastal zone administrator. She launched an international design competition aimed at finding new ways of getting and keeping sand on the city's beaches. Dune systems and artificial reefs were suggested, but ultimately, Oceanside and other coastal cities may have to accept that wide, sandy beaches will no longer be part of their future. The reality is that over decades, the coast has been highly engineered. Millions of cubic yards of sand dredged from other parts of the coast or offshore sandbars known as borrow sites were added over decades in the last century to build beaches like the one in Santa Monica. In Newport Beach and Ventura, jetties were installed decades ago to combat erosion and help those beaches replenish. But all jetties do is prevent the dwindling sand from settling elsewhere. From shifting, yeah. Yeah. Yep. In California, development in many places along the coast has created a hard barrier, stopping the natural ebb. At the same time, dams and concrete canals have reduced the amount of river sediment flowing downstream that could help replenish beach sand and nearby bluffs that would normally erode have been fortified to protect homes and railroad tracks built on top of them. A recent study predicted that California could lose as much as 75% of its beaches by 2100. So we've got to go to here at the UC Irvine Engineering School. Brett Saunders has been doing lots of modeling. He's been doing so much, he's become a real big man on campus with that. But anyway, Brett Saunders is the, the guy here that's watching all that, modeling it all. Yeah, no, he's not supposed to be negative about things. I mean, it's his job to, to no, figure he's not out negative, ways but, around it. But he's but. saying, yeah, we're running out of sand. It's not migrating anymore, and this is how long it lasts. And that, and then go to Orange County Register, and we'll find out which uh, congresswoman in the 45th District is using it to keep her Seal Beach Hut high property value. <laughs> no, it's all those are all the moving parts, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And so Oceanside will become Ocean Bed. That's where I think you're headed, Ocean Bed. (laughs) Well, that's where they're headed, unfortunately. Especially in Oceanside, you feel bad because the prices of homes down there are more reasonable. The beachfront properties there are certainly nothing like Newport Beach or Laguna. A middle-class family can afford to live very near the beach in Oceanside, and yet they're going to be, uh, like everywhere else, they have to reconsider their beach. It just might not be there anymore. Nestled inside the camp... Pendleton base, Marine base there. That sort of little furrow there. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter 
and Instagram at KCI FM. Woo! Where you go? Well, loudmouth today. <laughs> I always go on about people saying the Los Angeles Times, and what, I'm not really what angry about. What am I supposed about to say, dude? Los Angeles Times. Just Los Angeles Times. Yeah, Los is the. You're saying oh, it's the? like La Brea, Brea Tar Pits. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, my the, the gosh. The Tar Tar Pits, yeah. Yeah, all right. Because the reason I even got going on that is because this is from Le Monde, the oh, world. Really? This is the French newspaper the that's, that's been around. <laughs> yeah, do you say the Le Monde? Apparently here in the U.S., we know what works. If it's a French newspaper, we, we know about that. But if it's a, uh, a newspaper that has a Spanish name in a white area or a... Caucasian area or a Western expansion area. It's the Los Angeles Times from Le Monde. A court in Saudi Arabia sentenced to death the brother of an exiled dissident, convicting him of disloyalty to the kingdom's rulers in a case built around anonymous social media accounts where he shared criticism of the government. Well, that's not so much news, but the defendant, Mohammed bin Nasar al-Gamdi, a retired teacher, had almost no public profile before he was arrested last year and accused of treason. That doesn't make sense. On one of the main social media accounts cited in his court case, ex-Twitter, Al-Gandhi has only eight followers. So he's arrested as being a dissident with only eight followers. Hardly an influencer. <laughs> the sentence, which was handed down in July, was also based on a confession attributed to Al-Gandhi after his arrest in which he said he viewed the king and crown prince as tyrants and agents of the West who were fighting against Islam. Well, you've got that kind of partly right. Tyrants, check. Agents of the West, well, maybe we're agents of Saudis. Uh, one explanation for his prosecution was offered by his elder brother, a conservative Muslim cleric and vocal dissident who lives in exile in Britain, he said the Saudi government seemed to be using his younger brother to punish him. The post that my brother wrote, no one knew about. They didn't spread. No one even saw them, he said. It appears to me that they wanted to spite or harm or disturb me with this case. The case is part of a crackdown on dissent that has been deepened under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Bonsa Salman, the kingdom's de facto ruler who is said to be, have ordered the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. I'm sure you're getting more and more aware of how the Saudi regime has increasingly invested in, I still call it Twitter, the bird app. I'm just, that's just the way I want to be. And that the idea is that the first round, they couldn't get Jack to get hand over the code so they could go the back door to find out who those anonymous accounts were. So but yeah. when they got more access with greater investment, they opened up all those very anonymous accounts and they're going after everybody to warn everybody, we we know where you are or we're going to find you and we're going to incarcerate the heck out of you. So it's that investment with Elon Musk it is a very it's a it's a domestic policy measure to go after all these dissidents. So yeah. there will be no dissension ever again. Yeah. From the Associated Press, police in Nigeria arrested 60 people who were in attendance at what authorities claimed was a same-sex wedding, reinforcing a crackdown on LGBTQ people in Africa's most populous nation. Under a 2014 law, anyone entering a same-sex marriage 
or civil union in Nigeria can be imprisoned for up to 14 years. I wonder what their other punishments are. 14 years is so... Extreme. Yeah. Those who administer or witness such a ceremony could face up to 10 years in prison. We're just looking at it can put you in prison for 10 years. Encouraged by right-wing Christian missionaries, many of the approximately 60 countries around the world that criminalize homosexuality are in Africa, and in recent years, some have passed or vowed to introduce harsher penalties for same-sex relations. In Uganda, a draconian law passed in May includes the death penalty for some kinds of homosexual acts and life imprisonment for anyone who engages in gay sex. John Eastman has some of his smudges on this blueprint, really? but it's yeah. But the, and Our good friend John Eastman, right we, up there in uh, Chapman University. Just to, because this in Uganda, the legislation was pending; it was coming and going off the legislative uh, debate floor yeah. since 2009. And 2011, early, we got to cover that on my show, and I'm checking back in with the activist Episcopal activist here in Orange County and nationally that are trying to go the through lines. But they expressed to me, I covered this about two, three months ago, is that there still is a plenty of agency amongst the Africans, the in, domestically speaking, in their political movements. But because I used to implicate the Saddleback Community Church and others for intervening in that legislative process there in Uganda and Nigeria and everywhere else. But the good news in this whole piece that I was covering is it's starting to reverse a little bit. And there's also agency to push back on these draconian kinds of laws. But not before, though, that the one Uganda, it was finally passed and it's sending the message for people to go underground. And and we, we covered it all because it has huge public health consequences. If people can't be out and gay, they're not going to be getting access to the kind of health care that they need and so we're going to see certain health care disadvantages spreading that's putting it lightly so since we're talking topically here though and john eastman keeps coming in and out of the news well (laughs) he's also in on this this is what your christian nationalism gets you folks from the new republic the mainstream media has been filled with sensationalized coverage of smash and grab shoplifting inside a nordstrom at westfield topanga mall an Yves Saint Laurent outlet in Glendale, a Nike store in East Los Angeles, and a Subi store on La Brea. Businesses and the media keep their focus on shoplifting, but wage theft is a bigger crime. Wage theft is when employees refuse to pay their workers their rightful wages and benefits, like refusing to pay overtime. It's a major problem across the United States. One study examined three cities, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and found that two-thirds of workers in low-wage industries had experienced a pay-related offense in any given week. Those violations cost workers more than $2,600 a year on average, nearly 15% of their total earnings. One unsavory trick to screw workers in today's gig economy is simply to misclassify them as independent contractors which sticks the workers with expenses that would normally be covered for employees. A 2017 study from the Economic Policy Institute estimated that low-wage workers lose more than $50 billion annually to wage theft. This contract working is really kind of disgusting in a lot of ways. And as far as I know, it happens here at the university a lot, too. 
instead of offering more tenure track compensation packages, it's the ad hoc, so it forces those ad hoc lecturers to be have to exactly. have several different jobs. But I'm going to go back to the other classification, well, not just the subcontractors classification, but classifying workers as managers so the overtime doesn't ever kick in their yeah, hours. Yeah. And that's also a kind of a, we'll call it classification theft. It's wordplay. Yeah, but yeah. They, they, so but that makes those wages. managers spend more time without getting the overtime increment exactly. extra compensation. Do you eat much meat, Claudia? Uh, well, I don't. I mean, I don't. I'm not a vegetarian, but I just don't eat that much meat. Oh, good. Good for you. Not that much. For instance, I was at this lovely Afghan household last Saturday, and okay. there were lamb shanks. I didn't, you know, I'm going to enjoy the lamb shank with everybody, but I haven't made lamb myself in quite a long time. So I'm there to eat whatever everybody's eating. When I'm cooking, it's rarely an yeah. animal. Lamb was the first one that got to me when I was a little kid. I imagine these little lambs. The Mary had a little lamb thing. Oh, so much. And then I imagine yeah. eating them. And, you know, I know it's fun to make fun of vegetarians, but I don't know. Eat a lamb? As you know, I, I once said that you should be able to kill the animal that you eat. If you can't kill one of those creatures, then don't even go think back to about your beans. Yeah. yeah. From Cy Org. A uh, new study found that 12% of Americans are responsible for eating half of all beef consumed on a given day. Wow. Those 12%, the meat hogs, as I like to call them, are predominantly men and people between the ages of 50 and 65 who eat what researchers call a disproportionate amount of meat. And that would be based on the latest dietary guidelines for Americans, which suggest four ounces per day of meat, poultry, and eggs combined for those consuming 2,200 calories per day. Now, I know those are low figures, but those are healthy figures is what we're getting at here. The global food system emits 17 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year, equivalent to a third of all planet warming gases produced by human activity. That would be the food system. The beef industry contributes heavily to that, producing 8 to 10 times more emissions than chicken and over 50 times more than beans. So I don't know what to say about this, the demographic. Well, that's what I wanted to know, whether you were surprised when you read that. Because no, it, it, it just seemed to me like that was pretty understood without even getting this revealed. Yeah. What's curious is that after 65, it really drops off. Well, because the digestive systems can't handle all that crap in their system anymore. All the meat. Yeah, the doctors put them on a lower fat diet yeah. or, or they're not around anymore. Well, that's true. <laughs> but they're, they're not a percentage anymore then. They're either. not. A, <laughs> yes, that, that part too. But, but anyway, so they're all kind of limping around on some liquid thickened, no aspirating your lungs diet. Yeah, no, no piggy. It's not like I, I've never eaten meat. I eat meat. We do. I eat, but I but eat chicken. I rarely eat beef. And that's the problem. Right? That's the huge problem is beef, what it's doing to people and what it's doing to the environment, especially right now. It's, we could make a huge difference if those 12% just ate what the rest of us do. So I, that's what I'm kind of curious is if the, this has been known for quite some time, the beef 
climate yeah. connection. But I'm still hearing references to people's, you know, wish for that hamburger. Or where's the best hamburger? And it's just sort of like there's no kind of pause. Why? Well, no, that's a luxury that uh, yeah. you know, a planet's having a hard time dealing with. But it's, it just seems like there needs to be a pause, a nod to the consequences of that, and then go on. But but there is, it, there's no pause. It's just the the diet as standard continues. Yeah. It's just weird. I think there's something about hamburgers that are fun, and there's something about well, I'm not speaking for myself, but for no, other I, people, I know, but still, just, it just seems to be like it's not a 2023 reference, but it's yeah. I just keep hearing it. Yeah. Okay. From Los Angeles Times, cutting edge National Aeronautics and Space Administration imaging technology can detect early signs of a plant virus that, if unaddressed, often proves devastating for wineries and grape growers who lose billions of dollars a year to the crop-ruining disease. Using intricate infrared images captured by airplane over California's Central Valley, researchers were able to distinguish Cabernet Sauvignon grape vines that were infected, but not showing symptoms of grapevine leaf roll-associated virus complex 3, before the point at which growers can spot the disease and respond. The technology, coupled with machine learning and on-the-ground analysis, successfully identified infected plants with almost 90% accuracy. As the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Jet Propulsion Laboratory is working on sending its airborne imaging instrument, a spectrometer known as Averis Next Generation, into space, the research team is hopeful more routine aerial images and data from the launch machine could be used more widely to monitor crops. The ultimate vision is to be able to do this from space and not just for grapes and not just for this one disease and not just for a few places in California, but for farmers all over the world for many different crops and many different diseases and pests. Like Sturgis bike rallies. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Well, no, from? that's the vi- <laughs> That was the super spreader, you know, oh, yeah. in COVID. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. But, but so you but, can find super spreaders with that. True. Or they can just pick out the weeds of my garden if they want to, you know. But that shows you, though, how much capital in the wine sector. Exactly. That you can develop this elaborate virus detection. But I like that it can... Uh, it's got broader application I, there. Yeah, the broader applications of it. That's and that's good. They have money up there in the wine industry. They're trying to make more money. They're looking for disease there, and that will... This is actually... Branch out! This, this might actually be something you'd call trickle-down technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drip, drip. Yeah. <laughs> From Popular Science, a team of scientists from the United States, Italy, and China may have finally explained a large gap in the African and Eurasian fossil record. According to a study published in the journal Science, the population of human ancestors crashed between 800,000 and 900,000 years ago. They estimate that there were only 1,280 breeding individuals alive during this transition between the early and middle Pleistocene. About 98.7% of the ancestral population was lost at the beginning of this ancestral bottleneck that lasted for roughly 117,000 years. Some of the potential reasons behind this population drop are mostly related to extremes in climate. Temperatures changed, severe droughts persisted, and food sources may have dwindled as animals like mammoths, mastodons and giant sloth were, went extinct. According to the study, an estimated 65.85% of current genetic diversity 
may have been lost due to this bottleneck. The loss in genetic diversity prolonged a period of minimal numbers of humans who could successfully breed and was a major threat to our species. But here we are. Here we are. 1,200 of us. That's, that is just really interesting. I'm, I imagine demographers really lose their cookies over the yeah. what that has all meant. From Smithsonian Magazine, to manage overwhelming tourist numbers, the city of Venice, Italy, will begin charging visitors a fee on high traffic days next year. Though public officials are still working out the details, the fee will be about $5 for tourists over the age 14 who are visiting the historic Italian city for the day. If all goes according to plan, Venice will charge the fee on 30 specific days in 2024, likely over holiday weekends or on weekends during the peak summer tourism season. I think they should charge a lot more. Five dollars. It doesn't, yeah, that doesn't seem like very much. It's like it's just like a cup of coffee. It's what, like b- barely a parking fee. It's but not a parking. It's yeah. not even, I, that's yeah. what I mean. It's just, it's interesting, but maybe they're trying to ease that in. Yeah. Start people getting used to it and then creep up the rate because it's being loved to death as you yeah. as you may have already been pointing out weekly signals i just want to cut down in tourism in general they should charge everybody who's a tourist in any town there's a tourism tax we've yeah. seen enough yeah. of the world already or you you have to qualify to be able to travel for a reason there you go from reuters news service the department of health and human services recommended that marijuana be removed from the category reserved for the riskiest drugs like heroin and lsd so schedule one drugs and moved to one for certain prescriptive drugs to schedule three alongside ketamine anabolic steroids and testosterone the decision to reclassify marijuana ultimately resides with the Drug Enforcement Administration, which could take months to complete its evaluation. While the measure would stop short of full national legalization, it has the potential to help struggling cannabis companies in states where marijuana is legal and should remove barriers to scientific research into the health benefits of the drug. And make it easier for Professor Danielle Piomelli <laughs> at our Cannabis Research Center here to yeah. study it because he, he has to go through so many cannabis hoops to get product to research. And if you can't research it, then you're clueless. And finally, in memory of Marianne Guido, <laughs> Planning Commissioner and former Irvine City Council member Marianne Guido passed away Wednesday, September mm-hmm. 6th. Marianne was a dedicated public servant community advocate and cherished friend a longtime resident of turtle rock commissioner guido was first appointed to the planning commission just after irvine's incorporation in 1971 she was a member of the city's first transportation commission from 1974 to 76 serving as chair from 1974 to 75 she served two terms on the irvine city council from 1976 to 1984 she returned to the Planning Commission in the mid-1980s and since that time served a total of 20 years on the commission. Under her leadership, Irvine approved the city's first general plan and acquired 10,000 acres of open space and protected parks through her efforts to purchase Bomber Canyon from the Irvine Company. This year, Marianne received the Ralph Kennedy Award for her decades of work in Irvine and throughout Orange County to increase affordable housing and advocate for those most in need. 
I just feel like Irvine's a motherless child right now without Marianne. Marianne, do you are you aware Marianne was working right up to the last? That's what you were saying. On Monday, and I don't know anyone like Marianne Guido. She knew every institution I could name, whether it's a local, regional, national, international, local land use to socially responsible mm-hmm. investment pools, the shareholder kinds of conferences. And she knew those institutions so well, so grounded and so unassuming about the heft that she brought to leadership. And it yeah. makes, makes me really want for people that are serving right now that are just like an increment of that kind of heft in what they're providing for the city. I hold up Marianne as what leadership really looks like, what form, how pure leadership there is, because we're not getting that kind of from some of them serving right now. Do you remember the first time you met her? I want to just... The first time I met her, no, but I remember working with her for a long time when she was on the council, sitting in her office at the Irvine City Hall when it was in that temporary building on Jamboree. She was just a, a wonderful person. It's sad to see her go. It's so very sad. I know from people that she's mentored in public office, not elected, but just holding a public appointment of some kind. And I think Marianne's seated some proto-leaders in our midst, and I I want for them, to, they're kind of sort of shattered in their grief right now, and I, I want them to see that she's gotten them started. I actually had this conversation on Wednesday that for them to take take the baton she's oh. been handing to them, just hold that baton very firmly and know that they've got the, a really good start. It's so important. There's work to be done here in Irvine. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.